All right. Good morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and um, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, it's 2019, right? And uh, it's exciting. I am excited about 2019. Um, a lot of things coming up this year at our church that I'm excited about. I'm excited about this new um, kind of experiment we're doing with our community group. So we're going to kind of just reshuffle some things. Uh, we're going to meet on uh, Thursday nights uh, beginning January 31st. So please, um, please make a plan to be part of that. Um, I'm excited about... I mentioned this a few months ago, but it's probably good to keep mentioning this. Uh, if, if all goes according to plan, in May, we will have a, uh, a new person joining our staff. Um, Trevor Allen is finishing seminary at uh, Erskine Seminary in South Carolina, and our hope and prayer is that he'll be joining us in May to spend two years working with us as a church planting apprentice, learning about church planting before he goes off and starts a new church. Uh, so that's incredibly exciting. Um, I'm excited mostly about 2019 because it means 2018 is done. <laughs> um, 2018 was a hard year. It was a hard year for a lot of people in our church. I, um, just thinking back on 2018, um, think about the number of people that um, just experienced different kinds of hardship in 20, 2018. Um, the number of people in our small church who... I think sort of unexpectedly lost a friend or a loved one in 2018 was pretty significant. Um, 2018, I, I think uh, it's safe to say, was the hardest year of my life. <laughs> um, I'm so glad 2018 is done. Uh, the last half of 2018 uh, was just brutal, and I think it was um, a period in my life where God um, used suffering and hardship to just prune the heck out of me. <laughs> And, uh, and my hope is that that's all in 2018. <laughs> um, but as I've kind of uh, come through that experience of God using suffering to retune my heart, um, and as I've been thinking about 2019, what we've decided to do is kind of spend this entire year talking about, um, kind of based on the theme of our core value of beauty, um, our three core values as a church are the, the gospel, uh, vulnerability, and beauty. And beauty is kind of the one that's a little bit more elusive. And I think the best way I can describe what I mean when we say that, that we value beauty is um, there's this quote by Madeline Langle. Madeline Langle is, a, uh, is an author. She wrote The Wrinkle in Time, which came out a long time ago, but they just made a movie, so it's kind of been on my mind again recently. And she said this, she said, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. I just, I love that quote. And I think that um, to say that we value beauty is to say that we worship God not simply because we should or because we ought to or because it's right to, even though those things are true, but because he is so compelling in his nature, in his character, in his, in his beauty, in his glory. And so this morning, um, I'm really, we're doing a three-part series that's going to just kind of introduce this whole idea of the beauty and the glory of God. And so with that said, let me invite you to stand with me and I'm going to read 
Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1, let's hear God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you give us just a glimpse of your glory this morning? Would we experience uh, what Isaiah experienced? Would we see what he saw? Would you uh, make yourself more real in our hearts and our imaginations and in our presence this morning? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe that the hum will go away eventually, (laughs) either in your imaginations or for real. Mine eyes have seen the glory. I saw the Lord seated upon a throne high and lifted up. Uh, Have you ever seen something so glorious, so so beautiful, um, so so momentous that it took your breath away? Have you ever seen so something so magnificent? Uh, that it caused you to stop in your steps. Um, I think of so many things to illustrate that. I remember the first time we went to Zion National Park. And uh, I didn't think anything of Zion National Park. It sounded like a weird name in southern Utah. And we drove all day in a car full of loud children to get there. And it was going, you know, driving through this dry, dusty part of southern Utah. And you come around a corner, and all of a sudden you're surrounded by red, you know, limestone cliffs, thousands of feet high, and it's just absolutely stunning. It's glorious. I think of um, when my second son was born, and uh, he almost, we almost didn't make it into the hospital room. (laughs) He was born, we was almost born in the parking lot, and... And, uh, but we made it into the room, and, and I remember holding him and, and just looking at him, and, and the first time he cried, and we, the first time he cried, he had this, like, deep, husky voice. <laughs> it just chokes me up thinking about it, because it's, he sounds like his dad. It's breathtaking. He's got a huskier voice than I do. <laughs> 
I think it's skiing. I, oh, I can't talk about glory without talking about skiing. And I remember skiing when we lived in Utah with Ashley. We were skiing at Solitude, and it hadn't snowed for a couple of days, but there was a part, there was a run that had been roped off. And we were getting off the chairlift, and the ski patrol dropped the line and opened this run. And Ashley and I headed straight for it, and you know, we're knee-deep in powder, and it's so calm and quiet and beautiful. And people are skiing past you, and everybody's hooting and hollering because everybody's having the best you know, day of their year, and it was just glorious. We've all had uh, these moments, these experiences that just um, feel important and weighty and significant. That's, that's what the word glory actually means. It means weighty. Uh, it, it, to say that God is glorious means to say that he is, he is significant. He is the most substantial, significant being with whom we have to reckon. As human beings, we long for glory. We are hungry for glory. We are drawn to glory. Uh, glory is, is what we experience. It's that palpable tension when a stadium full of people watches in silence, you know, as a, uh, as a kicker attempts a field goal. <laughs> Glory is Carl telling me about the Eagles winning last Sunday and the absence of glory is what the Bears... Oh, he's leaving. <laughs> mm. Glory is what we feel when our boss or our parent or our coach um, recognizes us, catches us, praises us, um, praises our work. Glory is what we long for. It's that hunger that, that something will change, that something should be different than the way that it is, that, that the world ought to be different than it is, and, and we long for it, and yet we don't, we don't experience it. Glory is what... Um, the Union soldiers sang about in their encampments. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Glory is what our African-American brothers and sisters longed for as they fought and continue to fight for freedom and equality. What's the line from uh, the Selma soundtrack? One day when the glory comes, it will be ours. We hunger for glory. We long for it. I've been thinking um, recently about uh, this almost throwaway moment. It feels like a lifetime ago when I was in grad school. Um, Ashley and I lived uh, for three years in in Scotland. I went to seminary grad school for pastors at a little uh, school called the Free Church College in Edinburgh. Utah, not Utah, I've lived so many places, Edinburgh, Scotland, and um, <laughs> I had a, a, one other American friend, his name was Jonathan, he was kind of this gregarious guy, and um, we had just learned that our New Testament professor was doing his PhD dissertation on glory in the Old and New Testament, and um, our New Testament professor was a, a wonderful Scottish man with this great accent named John Angus, and he kind of he spoke in this like breathy kind of whispery kind of voice. And um, so we just heard that he was doing his dissertation on glory. We had no idea really what glory meant. And um, Jonathan being this gregarious, he was like, the only thing he could think of was like, uh, probably, you know, a black preacher, glory! Kinda. And Jonathan is like doing that in class before the class starts. 
and he's, he's saying, oh, glory. And you hear the door shut, and it's that classic moment of the person that you're like sort of imitating is in the room. And our professor kind of, he's there, and he's seeing us just being fools, and he kind of looks at us as he walks to the front of the classroom, and he stands up there in silence, and he looks at us, and he says, you do not know what glory means. And we just, it was all we could do to not laugh. I haven't talked to Jonathan in years, but I could text him that right now, and we would both be laughing. You do not know what glory means. And I feel like that has been haunting me, that, that phrase has been haunting me over the last couple of months because we thought it was hilarious then, but um, so much of what we do in life, in our work and in our relationships, I think is indicative that we do not know what glory means. We do what we do because uh, we're hungry, because we long uh, to be filled, to be satisfied. We are hungry for glory and you know, I, I said that these past few months have just been incredibly difficult personally. And I think that one of the things that God has shown me in this time is that, you know, being a pastor is complicated. <laughs> and so much of what I've thought that I've done uh, as a work for God, I think, has been done in an attempt to satisfy my own hunger for glory. And uh, we moved here about three and a half years ago to start this church. And <laughs> I thought, this is going to be easy <laughs> and awesome. <laughs> and you're awesome, but it hasn't really been awesome. <laughs> and it has not been easy. <laughs> um, it's been hard. It's been exhausting. And I thought that pastoring an awesome church would make me feel satisfied. And I think that... For the last six months, God has just stripped away all of these things that I thought would be awesome and shown me that he is still good in the midst of it. And so this year, I want to show you what glory means because, because I need to know. Um, and I think you do too. So here's my conviction. Um, we will be drawn by one of two things in life. We will be drawn either by our hunger for glory or by the God who is actually glorious. And our hungers will, you know, we buy new houses and new cars and, you know, we look for new spouses or, or whatever because um, what we have doesn't satisfy. And we will either spend our lives wandering, trying out things that we will think will satisfy us or we'll be drawn into the future by God's own glory. And so I want to look this morning and this year at the source of the light, that the light that is so lovely that we want to know what the source of it is. Because that's, um, that's what Isaiah saw. Uh, when we're drawn, you know, it, it's interesting, this idea that we're, we're kind of drawn by our hunger. You know, one of the main ways that we, we describe people in the world that we live in is consumers, right? Um, we talk about people as consumers. And I think what that means is not just that we are people who buy things, but it means that we are defined by our hunger. And this year what I want to do is keep coming back to the beauty and the glory of God. And I believe that as we do that, it's going to move us from spiritual consumers into disciples. Um, people who, instead of following our hunger, are people who follow Jesus. And I think that that's going to require two um, commitments 
from us. It's going to require a commitment to the church and to the mission. Uh, my hope and my goal for us this year is that as we look at the beauty of God, that God would transform us into, from consumers into, into missionaries who live faithful, ordinary lives. And that's exactly what happened to Isaiah. So uh, look at this passage with me. I know that was a little bit of a long introduction. Don't worry about it. Um, two things that happened to Isaiah in this really epic passage. Uh, and the first thing that happens to Isaiah is that he is caught and cleansed. Both of those are important. He is caught and cleansed. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. Israel had been experiencing under the reign of King Uzziah a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity. Uzziah had become king when he was 16 and ruled for 52 years. And so the stability that that brought to the nation was unprecedented. And it's in the year that he dies when the nation now stands on a precipice wondering, will this kind of period of glory continue? Or will we fall back into hunger? And it's at this point that Isaiah has this vision. And it says, Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. He catches a glimpse of the glory of God. And it's in this account, we see, I mean, you, you, Isaiah had a unique experience. But, but we see in his experience what it is like when we catch a glimpse of the glory of who God is. Um, and what, what this tells us is that these moments that we experience um, that feel momentous and weighty and glorious in our lives are, are just like the moon. They're, they're a reflection of the real thing. They're a reflection of the glory at best, the glory of the God who is himself its source. So how does Isaiah respond to the glory of God? Well, his response, really, I think it makes no sense and accept that it makes all the sense in the world. And what I mean is, it, it, like at a purely intellectual level, we think like, oh, he saw what God looked like. How fascinating. But what he actually does is um, to actually experience the glory of God, to come into the presence of pure goodness, uh, we are immensely, immediately struck with our own inadequacy. And uh, Isaiah says, woe is me, I am undone. He sees the glory of God and he's like, oh no, <laughs> this is not good for me. And there's two reasons why he says, uh, I am undone. Um, there are two reasons why we feel caught in the presence of God. And the first is that we're, we feel caught in the presence of glory because it, 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 it makes us feel our own smallness. Um, you know, anybody who's ever stumbled across the Grand Canyon has had a sense of how small we are. We look out at this glorious vista. It's enormous. And we just think, what am I doing here? Um, and Isaiah sees the glory of God and, and he says that God is high and lifted up. Uh, God is above the fray. God is, God is glorious. He is large and we are small. There's an author named Jerry Bridges that talks about uh, being in a play as a child, and there was this, I guess this large production, I think it was The Wizard of Oz came to town, and as a, as a young child, he had a, uh, a part in the play, and it wasn't until the night of the performance, um, where he, you know, they brought him out on stage, and he was like a lollipop, whatever kid, and he does this 90 seconds on stage, and then they take him back into this room, and he has to sit there for hours and hours, and and the play goes on, and they didn't let him go back out there again. 
And he says, I didn't realize that I was not the main character in the play. And that the play was about something else entirely. And it is good and right that we come to terms with the fact that we are not the main character of the story. That God has been at work for thousands of years before we ever came along. Millions of years before we ever came along. And he may well continue you know, for as long uh, you know, after we're gone, who's the, who's the comedian who said, in a hundred years, all new people? Um, God will continue to be at work long after we're gone. And it is narcissism to um, suppose that somewhere, you know, in the middle of all of that, the story revolves around me. It's good and right to be reminded that we are not the main character in the story. The story is ruined when minor characters grasp at the spotlight. But the second reason that we feel caught by the glory of God is not just because we're small, but also because of our sin. And it's not easy really to talk about um, sin in our culture, because as soon as you talk about the fact that we are sinners, somebody says, well, like, yeah, but nobody's perfect, and I've never killed anybody, as if that's the only thing that you could ever do um, wrong, kill someone. But when we compare ourselves to others, sure, like, I've never killed anybody and stored their body in my freezer. <laughs> but there's a lot of other sins <laughs> that are available. Um, but when we're confronted with the glory of God, there's no more hiding, there's no more pretending. But look at the way that God responds. When, when Isaiah sees the, the glory of God and he says, oh no, I'm, I've just fallen apart, I'm lost. An angel takes a tong, uh, takes a coal, and he goes and he touches it to Isaiah's lips. Why does he do that? Well, Isaiah has said, he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then the angel touches him on the lips. And what's happening is that Isaiah, it's, it's really interesting actually, the, the call of Isaiah is six chapters. He's already into the book. Uh, usually the call of the prophet comes in chapter one, but he's, he's a, that's his job, that's his vocation, it's who he is. He's a professional talker. And he says, I talk and I talk and I talk. And he sees the glory of God and he goes, oh no, I talk. <laughs> I say words. Um, and my people say words and they're bad. Um, and so the angel takes the coal and he touches Isaiah's mouth and he says, you're clean. It's in the, it's in the place of uh, his own sin uh, that, that God cleans him, cleanses him. The angel takes a coal from the altar and the altar is the place where sacrifice was made, where an innocent animal had been killed to pay for the the sin of those who are guilty, where, where an innocent one had exchanged place with it, one who was guilty. And so it's from the altar that this coal comes and touches Isaiah's lips, and, and the angel says, your sin has been paid for, your guilt is taken away, your relationship with God is restored, you are, you've been made whole, you have, you have been cleansed, you're healed. And, um, and that's why we come, that's why we come to worship. <laughs> That's why, I mean, Jason said this a minute ago, we don't, we don't confess our sin because, you know, God's kind of upset and he just would like it if we felt bad about ourselves. We can only experience healing if we've acknowledged that there is a problem. 
And so we come to worship week in and week out to confess our sins so that God can heal. We come to worship every week because it's the only place where we can go and be fully honest about who we really are and hear good news in response. Where we can be honest and say, I really, I really am a sinner. And the response is not, yeah. <laughs> the response is, and you've been forgiven. We come to be reminded that Jesus sacrificed himself for us, that he took our place, and that he gave us his in exchange. We come to be reminded of the cross because it's on the cross that this whole problem of our hunger for glory and our lack of glory is solved. Because it's on the cross that we see uh, Jesus giving his glory for us. There's this fascinating moment in, um, in um, John chapter 17 where as Jesus is um, moving towards the cross, he prays and um, he says, he prays, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, all whom you have given him. And they says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, Father, you and I have existed for all of eternity in a perfect relationship of love and glory. Where God, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has existed in this circle, this, this kind of continual community, uh, giving glory and honor and praise to one another. And Jesus, as he approaches the cross, is saying, I have glorified you, Father, by being perfectly obedient. Now would you take the glory that we have and that I have earned and give it to those for whom I'm about to die. God created the world in order to expand the circle of love, in order to invite us into his love. But instead of being content with God's glory, Adam and Eve uh, divorced God, turned their back on him, and the results were disastrous. And so how does God respond to that? He could have simply just wiped out the human race. But instead he said that he would come. Instead of wiping us out, Jesus left heaven he gave up the glory that he had. He emptied himself until the point where he goes to the cross. He is he's utterly empty. He is utterly hungry. He cries out on the cross, I thirst. Why does he do that? Well, he does it in order to give us his glory. God created us for glory, but we chose hunger and shame instead. And so the question is, how will that ever change? How will that cycle of shame ever be broken? The answer can only be that one who is full steps in and breaks the cycle. Um, how do we try to change? You know, we, we think that we can change by shaming ourselves, shaming others. That our, We think that our constant criticism is going to change somebody else, but as my wife reminded me yesterday, it never, like, what? shaming somebody has never changed them at all. Sorry. <laughs> it only adds to the pain. <clears throat> You know, there's a phrase that um, hurting people hurt people, broken people break people. 
But I wonder if it's also true that glorious people give glory to people. And glorified people honor others. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus leaving the glory of his Father and coming to earth to give up his glory in order to break that cycle of hunger and shame that we have caught ourselves up in. To glorify us. We can no more shame ourselves out of shame than we can be the source of our own life. But Jesus steps into our midst and he breaks that cycle, that circle of shame. He takes our shame, he dignifies us by taking on his flesh or taking on our flesh. He lifts up our faces, he smiles at us and he says, my child, you were made for glory. You were made for glory. Jesus comes to bring to us the glory that Isaiah, Isaiah just got a glimpse, but Jesus is the incarnate glory of God in the flesh. In Jesus, we get a glimpse of real glory and it convicts us, but it convicts us in order to bring healing, in order to heal us, in order to fill us, in order to satiate our longing for glory. And then having been satisfied by God, he then sends us out in mission. This is what the this is what we're going to keep talking about all year. It's not going to be the same sermon every week, I promise. But I don't know. Maybe it'll feel like that sometimes. Because this is this is what the beauty of God does. It gives us a place of of rest and belonging, a place to say, "I'm okay. I've been caught, but I've been cleansed. I don't need to hide because I know I've been caught, but I've been I've been made clean." So I'm satisfied, and therefore I have something to give to others as well. And the second thing that we see in this passage is that Isaiah is sent. Um, look at Isaiah. He's, he's been cleansed by the coal, and God says, Who shall we send, and who will go for us? And, and Isaiah, Isaiah says, Here I am. I, I, it's so great. It's like he's saying, Oh my gosh, like... I. I just found myself. You know, when he first was caught by the glory of God, he said, I am lost. Woe is me, I'm lost. He calls down a curse on himself. He says, I'm lost, but now he's been cleansed. And God says, who will go for us? And he says, here I am. Send me, I've been found. It's like I found my calling and glimpsing the glory and being cleansed by God. He's renewed and he's discovered that he has a mission that God wants to use him and send him out into a hungry world. Uh, listen, if you are hungry for glory, you will go out into the world and you will fill yourself with anything that you bump into. But if you go out into the world and you are full, you know, then you don't need to fill yourself, right? I, I mean, think, think about a sponge. I think I've said this before, but a dry sponge, what is going on? <laughs> Somebody hear that? Never mind. Uh, dry sponge. Okay. What does a dry sponge collect? It collects anything it touches, right? Um, sorry. I'm totally distracted. Dry sponge collects... You're with me. You've got it. But if you take a sponge, a dry sponge, and you just dump it in a bucket of water, and it's charged full of water then it, you know, drips all over everything, right? 
Imagine like going into your living room and dunking a dry sponge into a bucket of grape juice, right? It's going to get all over the place, right? If you are empty, you'll absorb anything and everything in an attempt to satiate your hunger. But if you are full with the glory of God, then you'll drip all over everything. We are exactly the same way, aren't we? If we go out into the world seeking glory, we'll pick up whatever we bump into. But those who are full of the glory of God will drip it all over everybody that we touch. Um, I don't know if you've seen this. Um, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Uh, that uh, the authorities in, in China have cracked down on um, unregistered Christian churches. Um, like 90, apparently 95% of Christians in China uh, attend unregistered churches. Um, Orthodox church, like churches that actually believe the Bible are, tend to be unregistered. And uh, one church in particular, um, the Early Rain Covenant Church uh, in Chengdu, um, on December 9th, the police came and arrested 150 members of the church, including their pastor. He's been in detention for uh, over a month now. And um, somebody on Facebook this week shared a video of a sermon that this pastor preached in October, this, you know, a couple months ago. And he says in this sermon, he says that he was talking with a member of his staff, and they estimated that they had been taken to over 20 different police stations in Chengdu. <laughs> and then he referenced this Chinese movie where a gangster made a joke about taking over the city of Hong Kong one street at a time as he was taken into every subsequent police station. And this pastor said, you know, there are probably 200 police stations in the city of Chengdu. We have only been to one-tenth of them so far. And a couple months later, he was arrested. But this is what he said in October. He said, may God use us to make every street in this city know the name of Jesus. May people on every street be talking about Jesus, even if they're speaking in a tone of contempt or talking while misunderstanding us. I say that because those are your brothers and sisters. But the only way that that makes sense is if the gospel is true. And if those Christians have seen the glory of God and are full and are therefore prepared to live in a world where they're not going out into the world hungry to fill themselves, but rather full of the glory of God and Jesus, and therefore ready to drip it all over everybody that they talk, that they touch and talk to. You know, um, in America, we tend to have fairly triumphalist um, expressions of Christianity when we talk about reaching our friends, our neighborhoods, our city for Jesus. I mean, I, I don't even really know where the closest police station to us is. I, I, I'm not like advocating that we go get arrested or anything, but what would it look like for us to be so full of the glory of God? I mean, think about South Orange County. Um, what are we known for? Um, 
It's an affluent, beautiful, materialistic place to live. From the outside, it looks like the ideal place to live. And yet, when I talk to you, we often talk about how hard it is to live here. Because it's so stinking expensive, right? What if we were so full of the glory of God that we didn't go out into the world um, hungry, nor did we go out with these sort of triumphalistic views of winning our culture for Christ, but rather we had simply seen a glimpse of the glory of how beautiful and good and compelling God himself is, that we don't have to have the perfect plan or strategy, but we're maybe willing to suffer. Uh, the one thing that everybody in Orange County is really trying to avoid. What would that look like for us to live like that in southern Orange County, to be people so full of the glory of God that we're not driven by the insatiable busyness of our culture or the chaotic hunger that defines us? What if instead we caught a glimpse of the glory of God? I got to um, uh, finish by reading this quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, this is the most beautiful, compelling thing. Uh, I, I've read this to you before. Um, but C.S. Lewis said this. He said, we have this sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, that the, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deep desire, for glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. What he's saying is when we see a beautiful sight or the birth of a child or what, these momentous events and it feels so weighty and glorious, but we can never get it in us. He says the door on which we've been knocking on all of our lives will one day open at present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness of, and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendor that we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, the door will open and we will at last get in. Do you want that? Do you see that? Have you seen the glory of God? This year I want to help us move from spiritual consumers to missionaries, to disciples, living ordinary, faithful lives. And that's going to require us to make two commitments to the church, to living a life of mission. Now what might that look like? Well, I, I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, if you give me time, I'll draw a chart and figure out a plan, and, but I mean, I will. <laughs> but um, I've been thinking this week, my uh, youngest son uh, has a birthday. He woke up this morning and said that, six more days, and uh, we're going to Chuck E. Cheese, and I don't think he's ever been to Chuck E. Cheese. He doesn't really know what it's going to be like. But he's been sitting here drawing a picture of it this morning. Um, he knows, he doesn't know exactly what it's like, but he knows it's going to be awesome. And he knows there's going to be a party. And so he wakes up every morning excited because it's coming. It is certain. 
He doesn't know exactly what it's going to look like, but it's going to happen. And so he's living right now based on the hope of what is certain to happen in the future. And that's what it looks like for us to live as disciples in this world. Would you pray with me? God, we are hungry people. We, uh, we long for glory, and yet we're afraid. We're afraid to be known by you, by others. And so we hide ourselves. God, would you show us, I wish there were better words, God, to use to describe your glory. Holy Spirit, only you can truly reveal to us how glorious you are. I pray that we would get a glimpse of your beauty. That we would feel ourselves to be caught, to be known in deeply intimate ways and healed. That we would see in Jesus' sacrifice what we've been waiting for all of our lives. That it would uh, cleanse us and fill us and that we would become people who can live uh, in this hungry world with confidence. Because your glory uh, awaits us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.